Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And Jesus replied, Well done, Peter. You're exactly right. A plus for Peter. Oh, wait, just kidding. (laughs) Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your minds not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the gospel of grace. Would you pray with me? And now, O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in this place be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if I were a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher, uh, I feel like we would be in an appropriate setting for that. (laughs) God's got a sense of humor, I like to believe. Um, No, but actually, I was talking with the choir beforehand that uh, I, I asked them to stand for me, and then I corrected and said, well, would you stand with me, because I'm standing with you and co-suffering, co-laboring with you in the standing. And so as someone who runs at a constant temperature of about 200 degrees, I am co-suffering with you. So I appreciate your bearing the temperature this morning. I've said at least once before that I'm perfectly comfortable admitting that the writer of Mark's gospel account is a much better storyteller than I am. As literary units, the Gospels really exhibit rhetorical finesse that shines at the macro level. In fact, in preparation for this sermon, I came upon several accounts in modern history where people have done live readings of this Gospel from start to finish. Such a performance would not only reflect the oral tradition in which these stories would have been originally transmitted, it would also more accurately capture the literary genius and nuance that we frequently miss by breaking them up into manageable pericopes or self-contained stories. However, I decided that for the sake of time and my own continued gainful employment, (laughs) that I'd condense such a session into a more traditional 20 or so minute sermon. You're welcome. 
No, but, but really, work with me here. There is a lot that goes on in this short passage. There's a geographic setting of Jesus and his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, a Gentile region that had a temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus. Jesus' provocative questions regarding his own reputation, Peter's partially correct answer, that G- and, and Jesus' stern commitment to secrecy. Jesus' first passion prediction followed by the dueling rebukes, an intimidating teaching on discipleship, and a seemingly random apocalyptic statement to wrap it all up neatly with a bow. All of this to say, there are at least six different sermons within these 12 verses. And yet still, in light of this, we must consider how this story is indeed the gospel of grace today, in this place, as we corporately confessed just a moment ago. Within Mark's narrative flow, this passage sits right in the middle, both numerically, chapter 8 of 16, as well as literarily. It's a significant pivot point within the story. See, up until this point, Jesus has been bouncing around within his native region of Galilee and the Gentile territories. Here, however, Jesus begins his journey toward Jerusalem and everything that awaits him there, as symbolized by his first passion prediction. From this point on, Jesus anticipates coming face-to-face with trouble and grief, shouldering the distress of the grave, submitting himself to the ropes of death, as our call to worship put it. Furthermore, the gravity of Peter's massive Christological claim cannot be overstated here. You are the Messiah, that is, the Christ. This is the first time within the story that someone has attributed this title to Jesus beyond the gospel's introductory statement. Chapter 1, verse 1, I quote, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet, as this passage demonstrates, Peter is both 100% right and 100% wrong. For when Jesus begins his teaching that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be killed and rise again, the narrator leaves no room for ambiguity. Jesus is not speaking in parables anymore. Rather, quote, he said all this quite openly or plainly. But Peter believes that Jesus has misspoken. He is the, the Christ, after all. And though perhaps Mark's account doesn't deal kindly with Peter throughout the rest of the story, maybe a generous reading can give the poor guy a little slack. While first century Judaism was not univocal regarding messianic ideology, such a a victimized version as Jesus presents here was in no way a prevalent thought. In fact, at least 39 out of 42 intertestamental writings refer to a Messiah using notable militaristic language often emphasizing a deep need for spiritual cleansing within Judaism. So although consensus was rare, there were obvious schools of thought. Thus, Peter's rebuttal does not represent some outlandish theological hope of his day, nor is it at its core some trivial concern he happened to deem worthy of confrontational energy at that point. For Peter and so many others, this messianic hope was rooted in self-preservation, systematic liberation from an oppressive imperial regime, and concerned the very character of Yahweh with regard to covenant faithfulness to the people of Israel. But as Mark's gospel repeatedly emphasizes, Jesus is not defined by the term Messiah. 
Rather, he radically redefines what Messiah means. We see that Jesus' identity is not correctly affirmed again in the narrative until the unlikeliest of characters, a Roman centurion, declares, truly this man was God's son as Jesus ultimately dies on the cross. This means that Christ's somber invitation to discipleship here in chapter 8 does not bear the luxury of figurative rhetoric. Jesus' words carry the weight of his own impending reality. For Jesus, and eventually his disciples, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and losing your life for the sake of the gospel looks a bit different than hyper-spiritualized postmodern Western forms of Christianity, as we often make it out to be. Christian traditions that adhere closely to the liturgical church calendar observed the Feast of the Holy Cross this past Friday. According to the Episcopal Church, this day serves as a major feast observed on September 14th each year in honor of Christ's self-offering on the cross for our salvation. The liturgy for Holy Cross Day recalls that Christ was lifted high upon the cross that he might draw the whole world unto himself, And together they pray that we who glory in the mystery of our redemption may have grace to take up our cross and follow him. Whereas Good Friday commemorates the passion and crucifixion of Christ, this feast day celebrates the cross itself as the instrument of salvation. The late 19th century hymn, Lift High the Cross, expresses these themes powerfully. O Lord, once lifted on the glorious tree, your death has brought us life eternally. So shall our song of triumph ever be, praise to the crucified for victory. Lift high the cross, the love of Christ proclaim, till all the world adore his sacred name. And yet, how far removed do we find ourselves from this, a 2,000-year-old symbol of our faith? What was once a medium for the death penalty now adorns our necks, ears, or wrists, fashioned from gold or silver, studded with precious gems. Or perhaps it hangs in our air-conditioned homes or air-conditioned sanctuary, perhaps covered in tasteful watercolors or feel-good scripture passages. Such irony deserves our attention and perhaps even our criticism at times. We don't equally display other modes of public shaming and death We don't carry around bookmarks or set our phone backgrounds to images of a guillotine, a noose, or an electric chair. So why does the church universal still venerate such brutality, such savagery as the cross? How is it that we as a church celebrate and flaunt an instrument of torture? Because by the words and example of Jesus of Nazareth, The murder of God in Christ on the cross was only fitting so that God could be in all and through all. Not that God demanded a blood sacrifice to appease some insatiable divine wrath, for what kind of God is bound by eternal anger, no matter how just? On the contrary, God so loved the world that the only begotten Son donned human flesh through the incarnation not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Because no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
God in Christ had to die, not because God said so, but because we said so. When perfect love dared show its face in our midst, we took advantage of it, tried to manipulate it to our own messianic ideals, took offense to its subversion of the status quo, rebuked it, denied affiliation with it, and ultimately crucified it. And it was not the weight of our collective sin or the supposed total depravity of human nature that held Christ through his dying breath on the cross. Rather, it was the magnitude of divine love for all of creation. This is the scandal of the cross to which Paul refers in his letter to the church at Corinth. What was meant to scorn birthed grace. What was meant to reject birthed redemption. What was meant to kill birthed resurrection. However, the scandal of the cross does not end with Jesus. No, the foolishness of God breaks forth into our world even now. For the cross of Christ is forever the great cosmic equalizer. In Christ, the haughty and powerful are brought down and the lowly are lifted up. So where our power, our wealth, education, class, ethnicity, age, orientation, or overall privilege comfort us, we must bear the humility of Christ lest we disillusion ourselves into being our own gods. Though the cross served as a demonstrative tool of humiliation and torture for first century Roman Empire, the powers of our modern world are not so far removed from this context. From systematic and institutional injustices that cause the economic, emotional, spiritual, and or physical deaths of countless victims, to the ways in which we deny the imago dei in others and dehumanize them through cyberspace or across political party lines. Our piety, our intellect, or our supposed moral high ground does not release us from the charge to deny ourselves with Christ on the road to Calvary. The church has a long history of baptizing violence hatred or apathy in the name of God, as well as doing doling out countless crosses for others to bear. However, the distinction between the cross of Christ and those assigned by humans in positions of power rests in the scope of its beneficiaries. To those who suffer from addiction or mental illness, to those who have been welcomed but not affirmed, to those who are chronically homeless or impoverished, to those who are turned away or thrown in prisons for fleeing violence in their home countries, to all these and more who simply, as some would say, have their cross to bear? Who benefits from that cross? Because the cross of Christ reconciled humanity to God. Therefore, any cross worth bearing necessarily involves empathic suffering. Suffering with or for, on behalf of, not prescriptive suffering. Suffering to, suffering for suffering's own sake. And yet, like Peter, we live in the paradox of totally missing it, but also getting it every now and then, by the grace of God. Those of us gathered here are certainly with not, are not without our own sorrows. And so we too trust 
that where our suffering obscures the reality of the kingdom of God and the abundant life we are offered through Christ, we can cling to the bleeding hands of Jesus, who has promised us peace and resurrection. For through his sacrificial love, God identified most clearly with human pain and brokenness. And in this newness of life, we are to serve as beacons of hope for a world in desperate need of something to hope in. In our belief and in our unbelief, as Father Richard Rohr says, God wants usable instruments who will carry the mystery, the weight of glory and the burden of sin simultaneously, who can bear the darkness and the light, who can hold the paradox of incarnation, flesh and spirit, human and divine, joy and suffering at the same time, just as Jesus did. Then, through the mystery of the cross of Christ, this inscrutable burden, we may find atonement at one mint with our Lord as we continue and sing with throngs before us. O God, finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Amen.